In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to start the sermon with a different kind of introduction. I want to introduce the sermon passage by introducing you to something that's going to happen in two Sundays. Brace yourself, Advent begins two weeks from today. Which, according to the Christian calendar, is actually the first day of the year, from the sense of where we begin And as one theologian has put it, isn't it fitting that Advent begins in the dark? And so we will have worship as we always do on Sunday morning. But that evening, we would like to hold a different kind of service. And we're calling it a liturgy in blue. And by that we mean it will be a service of lament. Where you'll be invited to bring your sorrows where you will be invited to bring your tears. Sorrows to God, tears in prayer. And as I said at the beginning of this worship, it is as much an expression of praise and submission and worship to bring to him what afflicts you as it is to raise your hands in joy and ebullience before him. There will be song, there will be prayer, there will be testimony, there will be communion, And toward the end of the service, there will also be an opportunity for you to come forward and ask ask those who are gathered to pray for you about anything. Whether it is loss or affliction or estrangement, you name it, they'll pray for it. This is a service that's dedicated to the proposition that even though during Advent we all like to sing our Paul Williams music, that a lot of people feel like it's mandated that you're supposed to be merry, when for a lot of people, they aren't. This is a service for those who mourn. It is also a service for anybody that would bear up those who mourn, and you all qualify in one of those two categories. For whatever reasons you are sorrowful, for whatever reasons you realize that the world is sorrowful, I'm inviting you to this different kind of service. It'll be at five. It'll be here. We'll have it, and then we'll have a light reception in the gallery following the service. It's called a liturgy in blue. I hope you would come, even if you're not mourning, because even if you're not in that club right now, you will be. And it is as much a thing to cultivate as anything. Now, why would I allow that introduction of that kind of service to be an introduction to this sermon? For this very simple reason, inasmuch as that will be a service of lament and worship, it is also a way to cultivate something which is at the heart of the passage we're listening at this morning. There is something that James is calling these fledgling churches to, to kind of begin to wrap up all of his words. He's said so much, even in five chapters, that he means for them to, to part with them in the parting words of his letter with something he thinks is essential to everyday faith. Something that is an index of your grasp, of your belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus and his finished work. And James is going to invite us to cultivate that, and that's why we're going to have that service in two weeks. What is that thing? You'll hear it in just a moment. But what James is going to do for us is to talk about what it is, What are the things that are most against it? And finally, how to find it. 
what it is, the things that are arrayed against it, and how to find it. Listen carefully. It won't take much work to figure out what is at the subject of this passage. If you're able to stand, we're in chapter 5, starting in verse 7. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. To get into the passage, I want to have you imagine a scene, a scene at a bus stop. And I'd like you to imagine three different kinds of people waiting for that bus. The first person is there, they're standing, and they're pacing back and forth. They're checking their watch repeatedly. They're looking up the avenue every other second to see if they can see the bus clearing the horizon. They're grinding their teeth. They are cussing to themselves. Where is the bus? Or they are cussing to somebody right there. Where is the bus? They're waiting and they're pacing. That's the first kind of waiter. The second kind is the person that is sitting on the bench at the bus stop. They are calm. They're placid. They're not looking at their watch. They're not looking up the street. They know the bus is coming. They're reading a book. And every once in a while, they'll close it and just sort of gaze in splendor at the diversity of people walking in their midst, doing their things they can only imagine what they're of. That's the second kind of person waiting. The third kind is one that was at one time at the bench and seemed calm, and then at some point shifted and began pacing, and then eventually, almost in dejection, walked three blocks up to the coffee shop and just sat down and stared at their smartphone. If the bus is coming, great, but their anticipation of it coming was sorely reduced, and so they're just going to give their attention to any number of things that might keep their attention for a while, but in the end, is just a way to pass the time. All three of those people waiting for the bus, they're all waiting, but not all waiting is the same. Each one of them is waiting with a very different quality of their waiting. And if you weren't sure what James's focus is in this passage, it has everything to do with patience. Patience is an act of waiting, but not all waiting is patient. And the question is, what is that holy patience that James is calling us to? Look, uh, 
I am not talking about what James is not talking about. And what James is not talking about is the sort of pedestrian ways in which we think about patience. Like you're waiting for a bus or you're waiting for a friend or you're waiting for a spouse or you're waiting for the mailman. Those are all things we wait for and you can wait for them patiently. But James is not talking about that kind of superficial or, or just sort of the, the mundane run-of-the-mill ways in which we wait. He's talking about a patience for something greater. He's talking about a patience for a greater change. And the people that James is writing to are certainly waiting for a greater change. If you have been here, you have heard, you know, sort of obliquely about what's going on in their lives. And what we know of that community, those fledgling Jewish Christian communities in Syria in the first century, they were oppressed. They'd had a lot cut off from them simply by virtue of their professing Jesus. And they know what it means to be a refugee. And they know what it means to be iced out. And they're oppressed. And they are waiting for their change. Now you may not identify with that experience at all. Some of you may. In large part, who we are as a people, where we are in a civilization, where we are in the 21st century, oppression is not our common experience. But even if you can't identify with them, you know what it is to long for a greater change. In about six weeks, people are going to do again what they do every year and then ask themselves by February why they did. And that's a New Year's resolution. Why do they do that? Because they want a new self. People are going to buy all sorts of books about relationships, about outlook, about location. Why? Because they want a new life. They want a new outlook. They want a new vocation. They want a new kind of quality of relationship. People align themselves with causes and Throw in with certain candidates. Why? Because they want a new world. So even if you're not being oppressed in your own life, you know what it is to long for change. Real change. But here's the thing about longing for change in our world in 2018. This world does its level best to help you increase your expectation for immediacy. You want it now because you can get it now. You can have it in two hours. You can have it mailed in two days. Labor-saving devices, microchips, you name it. You can get it quickly. But with the increase in rise in our ability to get things with immediacy, you know what is decreased in proportion? Our ability to wait with patience. Because everything is faster, but none of us are any better about waiting for it. And so the condition we find ourselves in is this. We properly long for legitimate changes in a lot of ways. And this world will make you wait. But it will never make you patient. And what James is out to tell us in these six verses is one thing. The life of everyday faith is a life of a call to patience. There's no way around it. There is no faith apart from waiting with patience. And he wants to define that for us. He would say, faith is, by definition, an act of waiting. It is a discipline of waiting. The author of Hebrews reminds us what faith is in its essence. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Sit with that verse for even a minute and realize faith is then by definition an act of waiting. 
And the question is, how will you wait? Which of those three people at the bus stop do you most identify with? And what are the reasons you can't sit calmly? James makes it clear. Given all that he said, given the longings that we have, given the struggles that we face, your only option is to be patient. To be patient and calm in that regard. But even in that, it, it, it's begging for a little substance. Tease that out for us, James. What does it mean to be patient, as he says there in verse 7a? The illustration he gives, I think, sheds a lot of light on what it means to be patient. And it's from an agricultural setting. And you heard him say, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. How does a farmer exercise patience? Why do they sow their seed? Because they have hope that fruit will be born. But why do they wait? Why do they wait until the early and the late rains come? The early rains that help nurture it in the winter and the late rains that help things to blossom and grow? Because they know they don't have a choice. What patience is, in so many words, is a hope in a promise tied to faithfulness until that promise is fulfilled. It's hope in a promise of what could be coupled to faithfulness until it shows itself up. I'm going to show you a little clip from Sideways. It's a story about people who love making wine. And here, one of the protagonists is being asked, why, why do you love cultivating the grape Pinot, the dark stuff? Why do you do that? Why not some other grape? Uh, listen to his answer about why he picks Pinot. Can I ask you a personal question, Miles? Sure. Why are you so into Pinot? <laughs> I mean, it's like a thing with you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's a hard grape to grow, as you know, right? It's, uh, it's thin skin, temperamental, ripens early. It's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and... Uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. You know, and in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And, and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody really takes the time to understand Pinot's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. And then, I mean, oh, its flavors, they're just the most haunting and brilliant and thrilling and subtle and ancient on the planet. In a minute and 21 seconds, he, he describes what it means to be patient. To go for that thing that is elusive. To, to go with, with hope in its promise. And then to give yourself fully to its nurture until that promise is fulfilled. It's, it's hope in a promise coupled with faithfulness until that promise is fulfilled. That's, that's definition. That's, that's a description. That's an application of what it means to be patient. Patience, it rests where it must. But it acts where it can. 
That's what patience is. It's patience defined. It's patience described. Um, several years ago, I'm listening to Prairie Home Companion, and uh, Garrison Keillor reads this poem from John Updike. Uh, it goes, it's, it's, it's entitled, Hoeing. And it's encouraging youth to think about the wonders, the blessings of gardening. And, and Updike says it like this, I sometimes fear the younger generation will be deprived of the pleasures of hoeing. There is no knowing how many souls have been formed by this simple exercise. The dry earth, like a great scab, breaks, revealing moist, dark loam, the pea roots home, a fertile wound, perpetually healing. How neatly the green weeds go under. The blade chops the earth new. Ignorant the wise boy who has never performed this simple, stupid, and useful wonder. Hoeing is patience. Hoeing is believing that what you do to the ground, you till it, you hoe it, you seed it, you nurture it, it's a hope and it's promise, and then you are faithful unto its end, and then you have to wait. That's patience described. That's patience applied. And we could spend the rest of our days coming up with 10,000 ways in which we might apply it. But James sees fit to speak of two ways in which patience in the Lord has been curtailed. How it will wither. Where it is lost and absent. And though he's going to talk about two marks of where that patience is absent. And the first is implicitly the idea that our patience with the Lord is borne out significantly in how patient we are with one another. Uh, you knew he was going to go there, right? James, if you listen to his letter, he's more than just talking to us about creeds and doctrines, though that is there. He is there to tell us what does it mean, what kind of community emerges from those who live with an everyday faith. And so he's issued in chapters 3 and 4 all these warnings. Warnings about how you use your tongue. Warnings about how you think about your desires. Warnings about what happens when you get into a quarrel. Well, here in verse 9, He's given us another warning. What we ought be afraid of if we would simply want to believe and rest in this holy patience. And so he says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble. The, the word literally means don't groan against one another. Don't gripe. Don't, don't complain, uh, the Yiddish word. Don't kvetch. <clears throat> he's, he's not talking about uh, not ever having differences or disagreements. That's impossible. It's, it's not about never getting huh, sideways with one another. He's talking about this habitual, deep-seated, fault-finding, criticizing thing that lives not just in your words, but, but deeper still in your heart. And he says that's something to be fearful of because that word grumble might remind you of another instance in which it is found in the bible because israel in the wilderness they're delivered and within a few weeks days months hours who knows they start grumbling 
despite the deliverance that's been given them, despite the provisions that's come to them, despite the promises that have been made to them. You know the posture that Israel inhabits? It's the posture signified by the question, what have you done for us lately? And it's an attitude we can all embrace. And when we go there, it's inevitable that grumbling becomes part of us. And grumbling starts coming through us. Now, the churches that James is writing to, we can kind of see why he might want to say these things to those churches. Because you know, if you've been listening these last several weeks, they're under strain. They're under oppression for all sorts of reasons. Socially, financially, social capital, whatever it might mean. And they're under strain. And you can understand why in that moment, whatever these forces are from the outside that are afflicting them, whatever might be little things between them, that gets amplified. And you can get that because you've been there. Small things that might be between you and a friend, between you and a spouse, between you and a kid. Something happens on the outside that we're all afflicted by. What happens? The the small stuff gets bigger in our minds. We start to grumble. We start to complain. And James is saying, if you find yourself in a habitual attitude, a posture of grumbling, that may significantly point to the fact that you're not simply impatient with somebody else, you're impatient with God. And so he's inviting us to a little bit of reflection. What's beneath the grumbling? And he's not just inviting us to reflection, he's warning us. Because he's saying that not always, but often, where griping lives, it is evidence of a deeper protest within our very heart that is bringing forth the bitter bile that James has spoken of in earlier places in the letter. And it's an issue to be reckoned with. Because you have to beware letting yourself indulge in it. And you may go, you know, gosh, that's like, James, of all the things you could be saying, is that like straining out a gnat? Aren't there deeper, you know, bigger fish to fry than just grumbling? Um, Listen to something that C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce about grumbling and where it can go with you. He says this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. That paragraph captures the severity of where James is going just in this word, right? We got judgment, dude, back off. And yet, I think we maybe get it. Friends, how many of your curt, cross, angry, jaded, cynical, exasperated words to a friend or a neighbor or a spouse or a kid how many of those was less about them and more about you thinking you got a raw deal? That your issue is not so much with the person that you're grumbling with, but your issue is actually grumbling with God. That's the warning. It's the absence of that patience that he longs for us to have. But it crops up us in it so easily. And that... That may sound sobering in its own right, and it is. But the weird thing is, 
James says that there's an even deeper issue to contend with still. And he says that in the last verse of our passage. The one other place where you might note an absence of patience in you, a patience with the Lord, is where he says this in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. That may sound familiar to you, because that's straight out of Jesus' mouth. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in so many words, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Do not swear on the temple. Do not swear on Jerusalem. Do not swear on your head. And we listen to that and we go, what is he getting at? What's the problem? What's at issue here? Here's what's at issue. In that day, when you would make claims, when you would make promises, a lot of people were tempted to make an oath on some kind of authority that everybody respected, like the temple in Jerusalem. But when they would do that, they would try to give away the impression of their credibility, of their trustworthiness. But in their own mind, they're thinking, yeah, I can, I can take an oath, I can invoke the, the temple, but so long as I don't invoke the name of God to verify my trustworthiness, you know, I'm kind of covered. And so in their mindset, it was the equivalent of what we do now when we, we cross our fingers behind our back when we tell a promise. When we're kind of saying, yeah, this is what I mean. And in the truth, we're thinking, maybe not. And so Jesus is saying, you are practicing dishonesty. You are letting your words be tools for your own devices and not tools for the truth. And so it is a, it is a warning against using your words without integrity. But therein lies the question, why is James wanting to tie a lack of of integrity in the words that you use and this idea of of not exercising a holy patience. How did those two things fit? I have struggled with this one of anything in the whole passage this week. I, I, I can guess why the churches that he's writing to might need to hear that. If you're an oppressed person and you're under strain, you you might be tempted to make promises you can't keep. If there are creditors coming, people who are even oppressing you, you might want to tell them things that they want to hear even though you know it's not the truth. That may be why he's got to say it to those people. But why would James need to say it to us if he's standing right there this morning? You might even be able to help me on why you would say that to us, but I'll I'll, I'll venture where I'm coming from. When you and I are not in that moment confident that God is good or that God is trustworthy, or that God is present. If we are not sure that he is good, then we are tempted to seek our own good by stretching the truth, by saying things that we don't mean because we really don't trust that he's enough. And so we will misrepresent things, we will conceal things. Why? Because we think that's the only way to get our best Or we will flatter one another and tell each other what we think they want to hear. When given the opportunity to speak the truth in love, if we're more afraid of what they will say to us than what is the truth, then we won't be speaking the truth. And if we're not speaking the truth, we're actually not speaking with love. And therefore, if you don't think God is good or God is enough, then you and I, mea culpa, will be tested to stretch the truth. 
And that is why James would have us remember something. What is out to nurture our patience, not only to define it, not only to tell us the marks of its absence, but to nurture it. That's why he invokes the memory of the prophets. It's why he points or alludes to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and all those names that you can't pronounce in the minor prophets. Why? Why why invoke them? Because what they did was to speak unpopular things, even offensive things to those who were in authority, even kings. Why? Because they believed in the promises of God and they believed that his truth was more important than anything that they might protect in themselves. And it nurtures our capacity to be patient when we hear of those stories of those who acted with steadfastness and patience. Now you and I might wonder why James would invoke the memory of Job as a demonstration of patience. If you know his story, you know that everything was lost to him. And at least on the front end of that narrative, Job demonstrates the kind of worship, submissive humility that we might expect and hope to see in him. We might hope and expect to see in us. But then towards the end, you get around in the, you know, in the chapters 20s and 30s, right? Job is starting to kind of get an edge, a chip on his shoulder, and he's starting to make some false deductions. And we might think, how is Job an exercise or a demonstration of patience? I'll tell you. He might have been wrong, but at least he kept praying. Bitterness stops talking. What prevents the root of bitterness from thriving is being straight up with your God and being okay with knowing that he might listen to you and go, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong too. (laughs) We need those stories to nurture our sense of patience because there are too many instances in which you and I will be tempted to stretch the truth because we don't think God is good. I do. He's defined it. He's talked about the marks of its absence. He's told us how to nurture it, but he still hasn't told us why we should be patient. Just that we should, but not why. Why should you and I be patient? On what basis? Here it is. Because God is coming back. You heard it twice in verse 7 and verse 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The judge is standing At the door, the Lord in Jesus is coming back. And that truth is what James is encouraging those churches to establish their hearts with, to take their heart in hand and to preach to their heart that God is returning and that he will set things right. And those early churches in the first century who are being oppressed in every which way but loose, that will be set right. And so what's happening in California today, the natural disaster that's happening there, that will be set right. And the tragic evil that was committed by another individual, that will be set right. And the security guard that is killed for no good reason just because he's a security guard, that will be set right. And the corruption that is rampant in every institution in the land, that will be set right. And the hatred that has come to plague so many people because they operate in different perspectives, different ideologies, different political positions, that will be set right. When he comes, that will be set right. And I could say that 50 more times. But I know that you know 
that you think when you hear that, it sounds more like a pipe dream. I know. I feel it too. And so this dude named John Bald makes it pretty honest when he says this, what we really need is not some intellectually acceptable answer to life's most mysterious conundrum about God's action or interaction. The need is for God. And the nurture of the expectation of His coming to be coupled with patience to wait for Him to come in His own time. But here's the quote. The waiting is not easy. It never will be. The the longing to be that second person in the bench at the bus stop. Yeah, we might rightly aspire to that, but more often than not, we're like the one that's pacing or the one that's given up staring at their smartphone in the coffee shop. And we think just like Peter knew some would think when he says in 2 Peter 3, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We could easily say the same thing. People are saying the same thing. Things don't seem to be getting better. Or if they are, it's a very tenuous kind of better. Friends, then what is the hope? What gives us any reason to believe James when he says, the Lord is coming again? Where do we find our patience? We find our patience when we grapple with this. What he will do depends on us believing what he has already done. And so you and I find our patience in that he will come by faith in the way that he has already been patient with us. Say it again. We find our patience with God by faith in his patience with us that's already been manifest. And a patience that was manifested most clearly right there at his cross. When he exhibited his own form of waiting, not tolerating, but forbearing, in love, by sending his son who dies, who rises, who forgives, who unites, who sets us apart, who unites us to himself, who sings over us in love, and who promises us an inheritance that cannot fade or spoil. The only reason you and I might believe that Jesus might come again is by believing that he already came with love. And that's where we have to find it. And that's where we will find it because it is in that forbearance, that patience of God, that he did something. That Paul summarizes there in Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's in his patience, demonstrated in kindness at the cross where he offers forgiveness, that he leads us to see him and still to trust in him. When we look at the cross, we see how he sees us. Deeply corrupt in our heart and yet not enough 
to withhold his love. I saw the crimes of Grindelwald with my kids yesterday. And there's a line in there that's spoken by a woman who in an earlier day made a choice that she cannot forgive herself for. She is tyrannized by her own regret. And the protagonist of the film, Newt's commander, loves her still. And she says to him, Newt, you never met a monster you couldn't love. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus. He never met a monster he couldn't love. And you and I are monsters. And there but for the grace of God go we that we're not more monstrous than we are. And yet despite our capacity for acting monstrously, his love is true and steadfast. And if we believe that, we can wait for anything. That's why we need his spirit. And that's why he's given us his spirit. Are you the one pacing at the bus stop, grinding your teeth because you want your change and you keep looking at your watch and you're angry about it and you're fitful? If that's you, I'm inviting you again to this table to bring your anxieties and to ask him to renew to you your sense of his love. Are you the person up at the coffee shop who's just about given up on ever waiting for him to come back again. I'm inviting you to come to this table too to renew your sense that though it seems like every day is just one more day that's random, as Peter elsewhere says, to him, one day is like a thousand years is to him a day. And he's waiting for all to repent too. Or are you the person that's at peace, mostly, calm, not checking your watch. You took off your watch a long time ago. Do you know what patience looks like for you? Even if you're not being oppressed, faithfulness looks like this, to work to alleviate some of the oppression around you, to act as God does and as God loves. All of us are invited to that but none of us are invited without finding the strength that we find at this table. To that I invite you. He invites you. Because in his time, he will come with power. Because at the right time, he came with love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.